0: As you are seated, uh, make sure that you have your Bibles, and we'll be in Hebrews chapter 8. And somebody said, what verses? All of them. It's only 13, so don't uh, get too scared. But we are in Hebrews chapter 8 this week. Next week we will jump into Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 8, starting at verse 1. And our author starts out with a reminder and bringing up all the previous chapters. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. We have another one of these challenging chapters that sometimes we read it and we're just sort of like, I'm not sure I understand it. But when you step back and you think of it with a Jewish mind, it becomes very, very clear. And if you remember last week, we, we looked at the reality that Jesus Christ is indeed the great high priest that we need. And you remember, we talked about the concept of drawing near to God. And Jesus, being the great high priest, draws us near to God. For the role of a high priest was to allow worshipers to draw near to God. And we do that through the work, through the blood, through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Remember, in religion, not Christianity, but in religion... It's based upon what you do as to whether God will accept you. It's the whole idea that, oh, if I do this, this, and this, maybe God will accept me. If you have any friends who are Muslim, or if you look to Buddhist or others, it's always about getting better. It's always about striving and hoping that you've done enough. In other words, it's all by your works. However, the gospel which is what our author is bringing us face to face with, the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, says that you draw near to God by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Because he is the one who earned merit. You nor I can ever earn merit in God's eyes. Oh, we can sure try, but we'll never bridge that gap. That's why Christ Jesus came as our perfect high priest to be that perfect sacrifice that makes us acceptable to God. That's the heart of the gospel. And so as our author starts today, our pastor, he, he starts with this reminder. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. What's he mean by that? Think about what we've just covered, is really what he's saying. Is Okay, I'm going to summarize all this for you. And he goes, we have such a high priest because he's been talking about priests. We've talked about the Levitical priesthood, Aaron and his descendants. And they had to keep repeating the sacrifices. They could only serve for a short time, and they died. And then they had to be replaced. But we've seen over the past number of weeks, Jesus Christ, he's greater than all of those guys. Why? Think about it this way. The Levitical priests, they were only occasional visitors to the Holy of Holies. They only came before God once a year to atone for the sins of the people. But where's Jesus? Look at verse 1. He is seated where? At the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. He's on duty all the time. Not just periodically. Periodically. And so Jesus Christ, being at the right hand of the Father, on our behalf, he's a way better high priest. And that's what he is reminding and he has been building up to over these past numbers of chapters. And so, last week, we talked about the reality that Jewish minds would understand all of those things that came with the, first the tabernacle and then the temple. Remember, there was this very specific layout of different courts, and they had a visual reminder of how they approached God. All those courts reminded them that you don't just waltz in and go, hey God, I'm here. He is a holy God, and you would die if you entered into the Holy of Holies. It was a thick curtain, and it was only one person once a year after he had cleansed himself that he could go and approach God. And he would do that on behalf of the people. What's the message for you and I? We don't get to come to God on our own terms. It always amuses me. I'll talk with people and they go, well, you know, I, I, do, I, I come to God in my own way. I'm like, really? What kind of God do you serve that he lets you set the terms of how you come to him? You must have a pretty impotent God. I serve the most high God the Creator, the Holy One. And he's told us how we can come. And the really cool part, he's so merciful, he knew that I wasn't ever going to be qualified. So he sent somebody to take care of that for me, Jesus Christ. And, 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 and you know, this arrogant, oh, you know, I can do it any way I want. Really? It just doesn't make sense. And so... As we've seen in the Old Covenant, the Jewish mind, they understood that they had to come to God only through their great high priest, and then only once a year, and then through very specific methodology and ritual. That was the whole focus of the Old Covenant. And and, and we can understand, these Jews were really emotionally attached, because many of these hearers of the Hebrews... They had grown up within the temple system. And you had the sights and the sounds and the smells and all of these things that go with temple worship. You remember back when you were a little boy or a little girl? And perhaps you went to a certain place or church and even today there will be a certain smell and you're like, oh, I remember that. That's what these Jews are doing. They're going... But we had all that and now we have this really simple, we just sit around and we don't have all the robes and the incense and the pomp and the circumstance. And man, what are we losing here? And the pastor is going, guys, you're not losing anything. You are getting a better sanctuary. And so this whole chapter eight is going, this is way better than anything you've ever had. I get that it it grabs your heart But notice verse 2, a minister in the holy places in the true tent, the real tabernacle, the real temple, that the Lord set up, not the hands of men. You see, what he's helping them do is he's, guys, get your eyes to the heavenlies. That's where you need to be. And in the next verses, we're shown that this temple in Jerusalem, the tabernacle in the wilderness, look at the term that he uses verse 5, they serve as what? A copy and a shadow. That's it. A copy and a shadow with a real thing. The implication is, is, yes, you had all these things and it was special. But can you imagine if you're only looking at the copy or a shadow, how much greater the real thing is? That's where Jesus went, and that's where Jesus has sat down at the right hand. And Jesus Christ is a way better high priest because he has ministered in the real thing, in the heavenlies, and he continues to atone for you every day and intercede for you. Actually, he has atoned for you once, but he intercedes for you every day. And not just an earthy copy. And so then he moves on, and he carries this logic, and he says, Okay, let's talk about the Old Covenant now. It's null and void, it's obsolete, and that's exactly how it was designed. And see, he starts out by reminding us, when Jesus was on earth, could Jesus serve under the terms of the Old Covenant? No, he was of the tribe of Judah, wrong tribe. He was not qualified. And so he couldn't even serve under the Old Covenant. And the law given to Moses did not permit men from the tribe of Judah to serve. You can go back to chapter 7, verse 14. But what happened? Jesus Christ, coming in the flesh, inaugurated a new covenant which rendered the old one obsolete, verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he, Jesus, makes the first one obsolete. And what is absolute and growing old is ready to vanish away. It's like, guys, let it go. Let it go. That's the way God planned it. And realize, I think that verse is written, probably that temple worship was still going on when the book of Hebrews was written. Because they're torn. Do we go back over to the temple? Do we travel back and go do that? Or do we just keep worshiping Jesus? They're struggling. And most of us can get that. We have these questions in our mind. And what the pastor is doing is saying, you don't need to go back to that. You have the great high priest and the old system, all that temple, it's null and void now. And in fact, let me remind you of something. It was never meant to be permanent. Look at verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Ooh, hint, hint, there's a new and better thing coming, and that's been God's plan since the beginning. Now, let me step back, and and again, as Americans, we don't get the idea of covenants. But Jews would have understood this, and especially they studied their history of the ancient Near East at the time of the Exodus when Israel was taken out of Egypt. There was a common practice that people would have understood Where a great king, the technical term is suzerain, would come and they would conquer a little teeny king, the vassal. And so you have suzerains and vassals. And the great king would come and say, I'm going to conquer you and either you can take my terms or die. That's really the two choices you get. And, and by the way, I get to set the terms. And so the suzerain king, the greater party, would then say, and by the way, I'm going I'm to bless you. I'll keep you alive, and I'll provide for you, and I'll protect for you militarily. I might even grant you land. And then your responsibility as the vassal is, well, you pay taxes. You give me honor, and you don't make agreements with other kings. That makes sense? That's that's typical of how that would work. The greater king would come. And we call that a suzerain vassal treaty. What's interesting is we see the Old Covenant modeled in that way. When God comes to his people under the terms of the Old Covenant, that the one given at Sinai, Yahweh, the great suzerain king of the universe, if you'll allow me that, He laid down the conditions that would govern his relationship with Israel, his people. I will be your God. I will be your sovereign. I will be your protector. And oh, pity the person who quarrels with you. And remember, think back to the Old Testament. You can read through. And when Israel would go in, oh, things like Jericho. Just wandering around the city seven times according to the instruction of God and wipe out. So whose side do you want to be on?
1: Yeah, the great
0: God of the universe who's protecting these people. And what was the responsibility of Israel? Well, they're the vassal. And you find in the Old Covenant, you can go back and read that. I want you to obey my law. I'm giving you the Ten Commands, and I expect you to obey them. I expect you to obey the laws that reflect my holiness, Oh. The tabernacle and later the temple system and the system of coming to me and offering sacrifices. In other words, the great king has set the terms. I'm going to watch over you. I will protect you. I will provide for you. But you have a responsibility to obey. And all of the temple life, all of the Jewish culture and life was centered around worship of the great God of heaven. And also, if you go back and you look at those, and we don't have time this morning, but if you look at that covenant, you'll find that God gives penalties for disobedience. If you you fail to obey, if you fail to honor me, if you go off and play with other gods, there's going to be some bad stuff happening to you. You can go read that in the Old Testament. And so Israel could incur God's wrath for disobedience. And oh, we did see that, didn't we? Remember the exile into Babylon? Again and again, God sent prophet after prophet after prophet and go, yo, hello, I'm the great suzerain king and and it's not hard to follow after me and worship me and honor me. And yet Israel's like, oh, we're going to go wander here. We're going to go worship this. That was the heart of man. Now, when you get these concepts, you realize you now understand the Old Testament. You now understand the Old Covenant where Israel disobeyed again and again. Look at verse 9. What's it say? They did not what? Continue in my covenant. They basically thumbed their nose at the great creator of the universe, the suzerain, the supreme one. And then as God sent prophets, they 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 oh, we're really sorry, and they obey for a while, and then they wander off in their own direction. And so what the author, what the pastor is telling us here is that this old covenant had some problems. Look at verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that's way more excellent than the old as the covenant that he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So what we are shown here is this old covenant, it was flawed. Or maybe, actually, I like a better way to say that it wasn't so much the covenant that was flawed. Who was flawed? The people. You ever looked at your own heart? I love that hymn, My Heart prone to wander from the God I love? Can you identify? Unfortunately, all of us can, can't we? We realize we can't keep the terms of the covenant. You see, God didn't break the covenant. It was a good covenant. But the people broke it again and again and again. And so where the old covenant failed and where the old covenant broke down was the disobedience of the hearts. You want proof for that? Look at verse 8. He finds fault with not the covenant, with them. You and I as sinners. Ever since Adam. Remember, Sinai. Exodus 24. God gave the terms of the covenant. And the people are like, yeah, we'll obey. Okay, we good. We love this. This is great. You can go read it, Exodus 24 3. People were happy, and they were like, yes, we will obey. And then the rest of the Old Testament is their failure to obey. You ever have that? You start out, you come to church on Sunday, and you get all excited, and you're like, I can do this, I can do this. And then by Monday morning, (laughs) you've fallen flat on your face like, what is wrong with me? Yeah, you're a sinner like the rest of us. We start out with good intentions, but we fail. And that was the whole point of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is to teach mankind. That's all of us. You can't do it. The Old Covenant wasn't flawed in that it didn't matter. No, the Old Covenant was a teaching tool through history to show you and I that it is God alone who saves. It is God alone who brings his people to us, to him. That you and I, any man or woman, is unable to keep the law on their own ability. I love how Paul puts it in the beginning of Romans. You can read through his courtroom argument, I call it. And he talks about, you know, okay, there's some people who try to keep the law and they fail. And he's speaking the law of God. Then he goes, and then there's others of you. You're not into the God's law. And so you create a law of your own. And you know what happens? You can't even keep your own law. You talk to the pagan on the street and you go, Well, what how do you live your life? And they'll go, Oh, well, you know, I try to be good to other people and all. And I go, So how are you doing on that? Mm -hmm. Well, not too bad. You ever broken one of your own rules? I guarantee you, every time they will have broken one of their own rules. Because none of us can keep the law, even laws that we write ourselves. That's what Paul develops in the beginning of Romans. Great Sunday afternoon read, by the way. You see, what God is showing us in the Old Covenant, what God is showing us from Genesis through Revelation is the law or any of our attempts at keeping the law will never bring us to a point that we can be acceptable to God. We will not measure up because it's based upon our fickle human abilities, which are flawed. And the pastor is showing us the most detailed agreement. The covenant will fail if one of the parties is incapable of living up to it. The old covenant proved that again and again and again. And so the old covenant was temporary. It was designed by God to show us our failures. You can't come to me on your own terms. You must come to me the way I have said and provided for you richly. Notice verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion or reason to look for a second. But now we come to the good stuff. The new covenant. Look at verses 8 through 12 there. Our pastor is reminding us of God's words that were given a win. Through the prophet Jeremiah. This is the quotation of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. You can look in your little study Bible and have the footnotes. And look what he says. For he finds fault with them when he says, and quote, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. And with the house of Judah, not like that covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Notice the reference to the old covenant. But they didn't continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So he just referenced the old covenant. Now what's he doing? He's going, I get something better. It's called a new covenant. And this is a description of the new covenant, the latter part of verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That's the terms of the new covenant that's coming. That was the prophet who was declaring those terms. You see, God knew the old covenant was but temporary, right? It was a teaching tool for history to show that God alone saves. Those in the old covenant who were saved, they didn't look to the sacrifice of blood and or goats and bulls. What did they look to? God will provide. Remember Abraham Isaac goes, Daddy was the sacrifice, and it was him. And what Dad say? God will provide. Faith, faith in God's provision. Those who were saved in the old covenant look forward that my God will take care of what's needed here. I realize all this is not going to do it. Isn't that an amazing truth? And that's why God has said, I will establish a new covenant. And remember, it wasn't with the covenant that the fault lie. It was with the people, you and me, us as sinners. We can't keep it up. We do not have the ability, as sinners, to keep the covenant. And this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of the new covenant, and I can almost say you can use those terms interchangeably, the gospel, the good news or the new covenant. The glorious truth which all of history has led, consummated in the birth, the life, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the great high priest. And one of the things that we're being shown here in this passage is, is that the new covenant does not have the weaknesses of the old covenant. Why? The new covenant is one-sided, if you will. It consists of promises from God but no human promises in return. Isn't that amazing? The New Covenant can break down only if God's promises are unreliable. When's the last time God lied? He would cease to be God, wouldn't He? Because He is truth. Thy Word is truth. And so therefore, He can't break His promises. In the New Covenant, God left nothing to chance. Rather than depend upon Adam, and his descendants who all sin, what's he provide in the new covenant? Jesus, the great high priest, who is tempted in every way, just as we are, but yet without sin. He obeys perfectly on our behalf. That's the beauty of the new covenant. Verse 10, he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Now here's, Some promises that come in this new covenant, in the gospel, in the reality of believing in Jesus Christ. And there's four promises that are here. Number one, the first promise, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. God writes his commands, his laws on our hearts. Remember the law given at Sinai was good. Paul says that in Romans 7.12. There was nothing wrong with us. It shows us the heart. It shows the character of a holy God. So the law is wonderful. Where's the problem with the law? Look in your own heart. (laughs) You don't want to obey the law. I don't want to obey the law. The law is something we cannot keep. Under the old covenant, it was do this and live. Obey the law and live. But no human being is able to do that. Jeremiah told us why. Now, We're quoting Jeremiah 31, but if you go back to Jeremiah 17, 9, do you remember what he says? He talks about your heart and my heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's your heart and my heart, whether you like it or not. That's a character of man. No, we are not born innocent. We are born sinners because of Adam. But under the new covenant, what is God promising? I'm going to write the law on their hearts. I'm going to give them a new nature. Oh, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. The old is gone. The new has come. Do you see the new nature? Under the terms of the new covenant, God goes, I know you're broken. I get that. I'm going to fix it. That's the beauty of the New Covenant. Jesus does the holiness, and I'm going to work on fixing your heart. It isn't going to be perfect, but don't worry. You rest in Jesus, and that's all you need. You see, God's law will begin to shape us and mold us. 2 Corinthians 5.14 and 15. Even to the point, if you've been a believer for any length of time, you suddenly find that, you know, God's law has some really neat things. I think I love God's law. You may be like Paul in Romans 7 that says, yeah, I want to do it, but I can't seem to do it, but I still love it. You're always going to be in a turmoil, but it will get better and better as life goes on. And so we find in Romans 7.22 that we actually love to please God by obeying his law, even though there'll be times that we're like, squirrel, and off to sin. That's just our fallen human natures. But after you've looked away, look back to Jesus Christ, your great high priest, because he did everything you need. So the first promise is this. The gospel of the new covenant is so amazing because God begins to put the law on your heart. He will change your heart and change your mind so that you can actually obey God for his glory. How cool is that? That wasn't in the old covenant. Secondly, verse 10, I will be their God and they will be my people unlike the Old Covenant, guess what? We now get a personal relationship with God. I love Martin Luther. Remember the great reformer? He said it this way, that Christian life is a matter of personal pronouns. I love that statement. It's not, you know, sometimes religion It's Christ died for the ungodly. True statement, Romans 5, 6. I much prefer the way Paul puts it, Galatians two twenty. I... Have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live how? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, which do you want? The impersonal religion or the personal understanding that Christ died for me? He's mine. I am his and he is mine. You see, that's the heart of the Gospel. You and I are able to, how did we look at it last week? Draw near to God. Why? Because of what Christ has done. He changes your heart. And He now allows you to say, He is my God. I know He loves me. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for me. 1 John 3.16 And so, the Almighty suzerain of the universe, the holy God of the universe, can be my God. Amazing. You want further proof? What's Paul say in Galatians 3.26? He calls us sons. We get full rights and privileges as sons of the living God. And that's not a male-female thing. That is a... Uh, um, Wow. Thank you. Legal term. Thank you. Wow. Don't get old. (laughs) The brain goes. But it's a legal term that we are now sons with full rights and privileges of God's blessings. We're now part of God's family. Isn't that amazing? Third promise. Look in verse 11. They shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all know me, from the least to the greatest. Now, this is not a diss against Sunday school teachers, okay? (laughs) No, the point being this. God is not just an object of worship in Christianity. Yes, God is to be worshipped. But God is to be worshipped on a personal basis. This is what makes Christianity unique from every other religion. Ask your local Muslim if they grow close to Muhammad. Or, do you have a relationship with Buddha? Or ask a Mormon what their personal relationship with God is. He's not there. In Christianity, in the reality of the new covenant and what Christ has done because Jesus Christ has done everything I need, I am able to, how did we say last week? I draw near to God. Jesus Christ split that curtain and He says, "Come on, come on into the Holy of Holies because of Me." <sighs> Think about that in Jewish terms. But no, 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 no. Mama said I never go into the fine china on the white carpet. <laughs> and Jesus going, "Yeah, you do because of My blood. Come, draw near to God." Wow. You and I as believers, we relate to God in a personal way. We enjoy God. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one, what's the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You see the personal relationship? Because Jesus Christ, my great high priest, your great high priest, has made all of that possible. Remember? Hebrews 6, verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, a hope that entered into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on my behalf, becoming a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You can go into the white carpet area. You can go play with the fine china. Jesus, your older brother, invites you in. Amazing, isn't it? All by his grace and his mercy. And then the fourth promise. You find it there in verse 12. Look at it. For I will be, what? Merciful towards their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. You see, he's helping us understand the terms of the new covenant. And it's this. Jesus Christ has done it all on our behalf. You know my verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. The great exchange. He gets my sin, I get his righteousness. The great exchange. Not only is God merciful to you and me as believers because of what Christ has done, what did he just say? He has amnesia. He forgets your sins. Dan read it earlier. The assurance of pardon. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us? If you don't believe the Holy Spirit works, I didn't pick that one. Dan did. But isn't it amazing? He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us? Here in verse 12, he says, I don't remember their sins anymore. Wow. Now some of you here this morning, you really need to hear what I'm about to say. Put on your listening ears. Because some of you struggle with the attempts to, but you don't understand what I've done. Or you don't understand how I just continue to struggle with sin. Um, Yeah, I think God does. And maybe you need to step forward while we slap you, and you come back to the truth of God's Word for a moment. But... But I just keep thinking about and I go back to the memories of what I've done and how could God forgive me? Wrong answer. No matter how hard you seem to try, some of you just can't seem to shake the guilt of your past sin. That sounds familiar. Yeah. What did God say? Look at verse 12. I will remember their sins no more. I will remember their sins no more. This is the Word of God. It's the truth. Let it go. Why are you bigger than God? Slap, slap. What does God say? Under the terms of the New Covenant, when you hide in Jesus, when you have faith in Jesus Christ, I will treat you as if you've never sinned. Oh, sure, you may go mourn the sins that you know our are offensive to God. But God says, I will remember your sins no more. Now it's interesting. This is promise number four. He's already said, God promises to write his commands on your heart and give you a new nature. So yes, you know the law. And yes, you are convicted by sin when it occurs, aren't you? That's one of the proofs of a believer. That sin actually bothers you. The pagan on the street doesn't care. He's happy in his sin, and he doesn't care. And then God says, I'm going to give you a new relationship. I promise too. You're now my son. Full rights and privileges. And then he says, You don't need teachers and all that. You have my word. And you're going to know me. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's going to be sent to indwell you. And so as you read the Word, it's going to convict, it's going to encourage, it's going to strengthen all of these things because of what Jesus Christ has done. He has sent them. Here's how I look at it. It's almost as if He's making these promises as if God knew that you and I would continue to sin. Which He did. And He says, yeah, I'm going to give you a new heart and a new nature. And yes, I know you're going to continue to sin. But get this, I'm changing your heart. And will you rest in what I have done for you on the behalf of Jesus? Will you walk in faith in what I've done for you and trust me to continue to sanctify and purify you day by day? No, it isn't going to be complete until you're done. The day you're glorified is when you're perfect, but not until. You see, it's his last promise. I will remember your sins no more. That is the key to walking in victory in the gospel. God promises you more than just a fresh start. He promises you himself, the Holy Spirit. He promises you that because of what Jesus Christ has done, there is forgiveness for all of yesterdays and the past sins, and even for tomorrows. Isn't that amazing? Now, Some people are there, they're twitching in their chairs right now. They're going, well, doesn't that just encourage me to just go sin? Because they're all covered. You're probably not a believer if that's your thinking. (laughs) Because he gave you a new heart, didn't he? And so sin should bother you. A true believer can't continue to sin and just go, "Ah, it's okay, Jesus got it all, it's all covered. He didn't save us that we might live like the devil. You be holy as I am holy. So there's that balance in that. No, here's the thing. The people who work the hardest to overcome sin are those who feel the debt that they owe to their Savior. When you look in face to the cross and you go, I cannot believe that he would remember my sins no more. Man, I ain't going to put any more that I have to on his account. I'm not going to bring any more sin. And we strive to holiness. We'll fail. You'll fail. I'll fail. But we can rest in faith in Jesus. And so the key to a victorious Christian life is looking in gratitude and faith to what Christ has done on your behalf. When you look deep in faith to His work, you're going, no, I don't want to go there. I want to glorify God because that's why He saved me. And you will be amazed at what that does for your victorious Christian walk. So as we look at this 8th chapter of Hebrews, it's giving you the benefits and the blessings of the new covenant. So brother, sister, walk in the hope of the gospel. And walk in victory for what Jesus has done.